welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 328 and on today's podcast, Professor Mark Connolly from the University of Kent delivers a talk on why the Allies won the Great War. This lecture was recorded at the Cork Great War Conference in October. Right, good morning everyone. Can everybody hear me? Okay, is is the mic technique just about working for you? If if, uh, I stray away, you know, yell at me to get me back front and centre. Well, thank you all so much for the invite. Thank you so much, uh, Jerry Collin, for this. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here in Cork this morning and it's also frankly um, terrifying to try and do this subject in 45 minutes you know um, there is a certain degree of broad brush here and other times I might be trying to do it through the medium of dance so you know what watch out here we go right so let's, let's give the game away in the very first line right why do the allies end up winning this well what you might say is there's more of them, and they've got more of everything. That, that's what it's um, you know, ultimately you could say, about, that there is such a massive coalition together against uh, the, the central powers by 1917. Their um, material, manpower, financial ability combined was going to see them to victory. Um, but let's go back then. Let's unpick that, um, you know, and let's think about why it takes uh, uh, nearly five years uh, to to bring all of that together. So one of the first things I think when we're thinking about the way the Great War unfolds in the way it does is is to think about some of the great uh, what we would now call geostrategic ideas that are floating around in Europe by the time uh, war breaks out in 1914. Now, as I'm sure many of you know, um, there is the the great thesis of Alfred Mahan, um, an American admiral who has uh, built up the idea uh, through many talks, many papers, um, in his great book, The Influence of Sea Power on History, that... um, and he's really uh, you know, trying to explain the rise of the British Empire, that maritime, great maritime nations had managed to spread their arms, their, their kind of tentacles, they're almost octopus like, you know, across the world to drag resources into themselves, to export products and materials, sometimes that's even peoples, and that has built up great world power bases for them. So there is what you might say by 1914, there is a maritime vision of how world power is exerted. By the same token, what's gradually beginning to arise is, um, uh, and and gain more um, parlance uh, across the world, uh, uh, theories of um, people like uh, um, Halford Mackinder. Now, now Mackinder is is a um, geographer and political scientist, and he is trying to also think, where might the world be going next? You know, what's its next great developments as we've had these forces of industrialization, of urbanization and imperialism that have transformed the world so much. And he thinks that what the next stage will be will be the great central landmass powers 
that they will end up exerting world influence. Why? Because they will be able to push out to their exteriors. They will have all of the virtues, you know, that Clausewitzian concept of interior lines of communication. They are empires in their own right. So he's thinking of the, the Romanov Empire, he's thinking actually of the USA, the size uh, and potential power of that. He's thinking of Germany. And he said, and all of them will be able to use, you know, what we can think of as interior lines to exert themselves outwards. Um, and because of the ease of moving across land masses now thanks to um, uh, um, vastly exp uh, uh, expanded railway networks that they are going to find that easier for, than those who will have to take the longer, slower routes of maritime routes. So you have these two ideas coming up. And in many ways, you know, these two theses are going to play themselves out in two world wars. Mm? Now, so keep that one. You know, keep that one ticking away in the back of the head. Um, Here's another one to chuck in straight away. We might say that uh, certainly that the German Empire has, has lost its war by December 1914. You know, it, it's got a plan, it's got an idea, and I know there are all sorts of debates about whether there is such a thing as a Schlieffen plan, you know, what it's all meant to be about, but there is um, a concept of how they are going to fight uh, their war. A lot is um, hinging on the speed of those operations, and when they've all collapsed, by December 1914, you, know, you might say arguably Germany is playing more strategic catch-up and more strategic game-playing than virtually anybody else. You know, it's got to try and find a way out of the scenario it's boxed itself into. Now, if we go back to this, um, the, the sea power issue then, um, if we take it that um, Britain obviously has an enormous amount of potential power thanks to its great uh, global presence, but that's going to take uh, time to uh, exert itself. But sea power also seems to offer the great ability to be flexible. Because you can reach around the globe, you can do things around the globe. You can play out strategy in a different way. And as I'm sure a lot of you know, there is also, by the late 19th century, um, an idea which is often summed up under the heading the British way in warfare, that one of the things that had allowed Britain to, to rise to great power status was that it could hit its enemy in multiple places, often where the enemy least expected it or would find it most difficult to respond to the British. Um, and that fatally ends up fatally unbalancing them you know and, and you'll see examples being drawn from things like the seven years war you know the idea that that britain faces france but where does it face france it, it's in india or it's in um north america you know and it, it will end up winning because it can chuck its men and materials wherever it likes around the world now of course in some ways that idea is played out in the dardanelles campaign we have got a way of taking the war to our enemy um, in a way that, that should be difficult for him you know, because we can use our ships to deliver our men. Now, as we know, um, what's going to happen uh, in, in the Dardanelles um, is uh, a far from easy campaign. And although sea power allows them to maintain an expeditionary force there for a very long time, you know, when you consider the logistic difficulties of that, actually turning it into something that is war-winning or, or massively contributes you know, to weakening the enemy is, is another matter indeed. You might say, though again, it can be maintained, and the great glory is that thanks to the ability of British and, and French sea power, there is at least the ability to get out 
once something goes wrong. So we, we, we have that idea, you know, what, what is sea power actually doing um, uh, in the war? Now, on the flip side, as we know, the Germans have to try and break out of this maritime stranglehold. They have to try and do something to upset the balance there. So although sea power might not be decisively winning the war, you know, in um, one stroke um, uh, and finishing the Germans off with, with a sharp kind of um, a blade to, to the heart, it's clearly having some effect in terms of both choking and allowing the Allies to pour in men and materials to the places where they want to fight. The Germans in 1916, um, by coming out and fighting at Jutland, are in a very strange position, right? Because as the Royal Navy really knows, shall we say a score draw is no good for their enemy. A score draw is no good. A nil-nil draw is no good. The enemy has to decisively beat the Royal Navy to really change anything. So that we, we see the strangeness of the way sea power works in the Great War. You know, and, and the Germans, as we know, managed to score um, at, the, uh, at most a great propaganda boost out of Jutland by spinning uh, the stories in ways that suit them. But they don't fundamentally change the balance at sea because they, the, the British, although it might be bad for their prestige, can afford to take a few games like this because they're still sitting at the top of the premiership you know, naval game, as it were. So a score draw equals a victory uh, for the Royal Navy in many ways. Now, here we can see, and this is where we can start to think about time frames and why things take um, either as long, or if you want to play that, that other little trick, you know, as short as they do, considering the, the, the resources that both sides can uh, draw upon. Here you can see some of the major maritime um, uh, and imperial maritime links of, of the Great War. So Britain has this ability to reach around the globe, as we're saying, but every single bit of that has to be bought in. You know, has to be bought to the main theatre, which is um, obviously the Western Front um, in in Europe. So immense power, so but every bit of it needs transporting. It needs collecting. It needs taking to nodal points. It needs shipping to bring it. It needs railway connections at the other end to make sure it can be put in exactly the right place to be used. And none of that stuff can be truly improvised overnight. Mm. Um, we all, I'm sure you all know, you know was it the, the, the glorious old cliche that, that amateurs talk about uh, tactics and professionals talk about logistics. It's about getting your power into the right place where the guys at the sharp end can use it most effectively uh, to deal with a problem that's in front of them. So it's what Churchill will call in the Second World War, you know, in his war memoirs, as he says after um, Pearl Harbour, from now on it was the proper application of overwhelming force. And proper application, though, means 
echeloning, means piling up, means getting ready, means moving things into the right place in the right time with the right plan. And here you kind of see this interior versus exterior line argument coming out from uh, the great Charles Carrington in his wonderful war memoir, A Soldier from the Wars Returning. From the central fortress of Festung, Europa, the Germans using the strategy of inner lines moved down the wheels of uh, the spokes of the wheel while we were obliged to move everything around the rim. So there you see some of the time difficulties, the, the, um, the inevitable lags, shall we say, between vision um, and potential and actual realities um, on, on the ground. Now, because of um, this allied ability to bring things in, to, to eventually you know, pile up power, um, and because the Germans can't win, as they realise, they can't win in orthodox naval methods, they go for the unorthodox of trying to attack allied trade um, and, and hitting um, merchant shipping and such, like the so-called guerre de course. Um, that idea, uh, again, you might say that there's a kind of flip side to the idea of, of the British way in warfare here. This is about hitting peripheries. You know, if you can't hit the main force of the enemy fleet, you try and pick out something else that's on the periphery of that that will do disproportionate damage to your enemy. So the Germans go for the idea of mass commerce disruption. Now, as we know, in two world wars, that is, um, has moments of terrifying effectiveness. It's, it's what Churchill says, isn't it? It's the only thing that really scared me during the Second World War was the German submarine presence. But as we also know, ultimately, the submarine um, proves vulnerable and in its and it's at its greatest when it's engaging in a very disproportionate way when it's engaging the extremely vulnerable you know you put it up against something like an equal foe and it tends to get run into trouble ultimately it will be defeated so what we're seeing here, so the, the Germans trying something that, that's um, unorthodox, that hadn't really been done on this scale before, um, it causes uh, a lot of fear, it causes uh, a lot of disruption, um, and it can spin things out, but it can't change things. In the end, it's not technologically um, advanced enough, there are not enough of them, they can't be used often um, enough in big enough groups that allow them to fundamentally change balances here. So, we, as we also know, we'll get old orthodoxies revised, the return of, of things like convoy systems, other new weapons and such like, and new uh, tactical approaches, which will start to um, nullify the effect of, um, uh, of the U-boat. But, we come back to our main point, we can see why there is so much friction here, why things will take time for the Allies with all of that, those great advantages, those great resources that they have really to, to get the muscles flexed correctly, you know, and to get their stance ready for their main fight uh, uh, correctly. The other thing we have to think about um, here uh, in, in why the Allies won is that bourgeois democracies um, hold the consensus of, the, of their people. They, they keep their people's on board, even if they are all, um, uh, most of them imperfect, they are highly imperfect democracies, you know, not everyone can vote, um, it's not one person, one vote, uh, and an agreed age, it's nothing like that, but there is something uh, there that is a, um, uh, a good semblance, a good resemblance of what we would now think of as democracy um, uh, today, um, and the nations that hold firm with that, 
um, are the ones that are all standing at the end of the war. Now, some of them, like Italy, as we know, will be in a lot of trouble by the end of the war. But thanks, I think, you know, thanks to that very understanding that ordinary people are there to be encouraged persuaded, um, constantly told why they should be involved in this war, as opposed to simply ordered to be part of it, as opposed to have crackdowns um, uh, upon them. And obviously here in in this island of Ireland, there's there's going to be a distinct variant uh, on on all of that, as we know. But when that's the the general um, uh, approach to the, the problem, these nations hold on Um, and keep their nerve and are still standing at the end of the war. Um, Yeah, so what they're very, very good at, as we know, um, the the liberal bourgeois democracies, is mobilising their societies for what we would now call um, total war, of managing their resources, of bringing people in to the military machine, the the, the military uh, support machine, to keep the war efforts going. Mobilising the, the huge success of mobilising women um, in the workplace in uh, the Great War across, um, certainly across Britain, France um, and uh, the USA will be doing it to a, to a proportionately lower level because of the, the way in which it comes into the war and, and the time lag there, but they're going to do that um, nonetheless. We have that amazing thing of... Um, uh, the, the degree of um, innovation and invention that the Allies show. One of the strange things, and if you read any kind of um, social or economic history of the world, of Europe on, on the verge of war, you'll have all read those arguments um, uh, and very well backed up that Britain is in its own way on a bit of an industrial decline, um, you know, whereas Germany is at the forefront of a second industrial revolution of electricity, of the um, internal combustion engine, of chemical manufacturing. And yet, and yet, and yet, we have this irony, don't we, that Germany doesn't quite um, innovate and invent in quite the same flexible ways as the Allied powers do. Now I think there are all sorts of uh, uh, reasons for that, and perhaps we can go into those either in questions or later, but it's remarkable that the German um, uh, management system of the war doesn't quite lead them to that degree of uh, mental flexibility, and, and indeed you know, technical and industrial flexibility. Now internal combustion engine is going to be crucial to this, as we all know, um, as is uh, funny for little things like real rubber. Um, if you own vast amounts of Malaya, Euro and Burma and you can bring in rubber to keep your tyres bouncing nicely up and down on heavily smashed up roads, then more of your ammunition lorries, more of your lorries carrying soldiers and carrying wounded away, get there and safely get back. Um, what is it, uh, again, to, 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 I think it is Churchill, isn't it, who says you know, in the two world wars, in the end, we went to victory on a sea of oil being able to monopolise or or come very close to monopolising world oil supplies, of being able to bring them where you want them to fire on your military machines is really important. And and as I'm sure you all know in in German soldiers' memoirs where they will talk about having to go in a lorry um, that's now got big wooden wheels and if they're lucky a bit of metal banding round the end of it that is meant to try and protect the wooden wheel... 
And, you know, if you would have to fight at the end of that and you've spent 50-odd minutes being chucked about on the parve and jolted um, to pieces and are probably feeling as sick as a dog by the time you jump down from the tailboard, it is not the same um, as going on on a rubberised motor um, lorry up to to wherever you're meant to be delivered, you know, to begin your thing. So all of these things, these tiny elements that that start to come together, I think we can sometimes see, perhaps all wars, and particularly the two great wars, um, you know, the the head of the uh, British uh, Olympic cycling team, where he said the reason we're successful is we micromanage down to every detail, and we think about the effect that it's having on our team, you know, even to the... Where he said, I have them washing their hands when they arrive anywhere, just to make sure that they don't pick up any little bacteria that might affect their things. And he said, I also have them washing their hands in a particular way to massage their muscles, so they grip you know, the handlebars in a particular way. And, and I think you can kind of almost see parallels in, in the way that the uh, modern war is one, that it's all these tiny, tiny little elements that once you get them in the right place can prove uh, the tipping points where there are fine balances. Now, if we flip this round... Autocracy and authoritarianism, you know, the way uh, Germany as a state is run, Russia as a state, um, uh, Austria-Hungary as a state are run in, in the um, Great War. There is the surface sense you know, in which great centralised power and uh, a degree of autocracy, as we know Germany and Austria, you know, all of them have a kind of semblance of, of democracy but there's also a lot of particularly in uh, Hohenzollern Germany shall we say there's a lot of backwiring which allows um, the forces um, of of Prussia uh, and um, uh, those of great influence to get round the the democratic mechanisms to do what they want Um, all of these will have the surface um, uh, ability to immediately intervene, to immediately direct, to use forces of law and order, to cajole, to you know, smack people into line. But all of those mechanisms will ultimately fail. They do not pass the test. You know, they do not stand up to a long, drawn-out and uh, traumatic affair. They, they will collapse. So you might say, you know, liberal democracies always have the um, problem that there's going to be a lot of internal arguments along the way about how you do something and how you go about it, and they might have a lot of failed experiments, but that sheer process of dialogue, of constant engagement, is going to be better in the end. You know, it will be more effective for them. Um, we know, you know that the failure of German federalisation in the Great War, the, the German federal state, you know, if we take it in, if we look at something like rationing, because so much of that is devolved to the landers, devolved to the states, what effectively you get in Germany by mid-1917 is a massive internal food market. Rather, So we have this irony, you, know, you have a highly centralised uh, power block in Germany, and yet when it comes to crucial things like rationing, the devolution, to the various states means you know that if you're a farmer in Bavaria and someone is saying, well, if you could bring it over the, the, the border, you know, if you could bring it into Saxony, I can offer you double for that. Well, that's what you end up doing hmm? because it's not being thought through properly. It's not being coordinated properly because the, the, the fundamental you know, balances of the way Germany is as a state. We also know that Russia in 1917 actually has huge amounts of grain in store. It, there, there is a lot there. You know, the, the, the bread supply could be kept going. 
But it is so internally badly run, the distribution systems, um, the mechanisms, the civil service mechanisms to make sure grain gets to the right place at the right time collapse and you get a starving population that simply won't take it um, anymore. Then, let's flip round. So sorry that I'm chucking tons of factors. You're probably beginning to feel that this is like a Norman Wisdom film with pies you know, going everywhere. Splat, splat. So um, here, here's the next one. Boom. Um, by 1917, if we take it as 1917, this moment of remobilisation, as it's often called. You know, 1916, both sides firing almost bolts at each other, and they don't quite rock each other enough. So 1917 means they're having to ratchet it all up again, and the Allies get an enormous advantage that America finally goes you know, from its, its quiet uh, but increasingly loud you know, pro-entente um, uh, leanings to becoming a full member, uh, 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 an associated member of the coalition. And that means you know, everything can become open and everything can flow uh, that more easily. So we get a huge cash transfusion. You know, American bankers are increasingly signing the checks, underwriting what's going on for, for the Allies, something that the Germans can't get anywhere, the Germans and the Allies can't get anywhere near during the war. There's also a massive blood transfusion. I mean, that's the term that the French will use about it. You know, this is a blood transfusion. They do see it in that way. That um, and, and you know, song, it's song. It's con it's not even you know core. It's not even American bodies. It's American blood that means so much to France. Um, now this you know, vast nation that's an empire in, in size in its own right with its vast population. That means it is as in two world wars. You know, it's almighty in potential, but it's going to be a bit slow to be realised. You can't great you know get a giant off out of its bed um, and then walking out of the house if you want to sort of play those terms walking out of its castle instantly it's going to take a little bit of time for it to get up and get going so in some ways as again as we all know about uh, the, the when it comes to the american military presence it's the potential it's the promise of what it is certainly that effect on the enemy and the psychological effect on france is huge you know, this might take some time, but goodness, it, it, once it's all here and once it's all in the right place, it is going to be unstoppable. And of course, that has a knock-on effect. I know Steve will be talking about this later, you know, on German strategy, the way that Germans want to play things out in the last, uh, what becomes the last year of the war. So if the Allies are you know, increasingly build their strategy, slow but sure, it's getting somewhere. It might uh, seem a bit ramshackle at times, but there's a kind of um, ultimate goal to all of this, which needs time to sort it out. By the flip side, we see in Berlin strategic bankruptcy. You know, you're getting nowhere on the Eastern Front or the Western Front uh, in many instances. So a gamble is tried. Why don't we try and bleed British power by we will set up an alternative theatre? We will get them running around because we all know the British are obsessed with their empire. We all know they're obsessed with Africa and anything particularly in East Africa. That's, all you've got to do is mention Suez to the British and they have a fit of the vapours. You know, so anything that is in East Africa is bound to start sucking power towards Africa and the Germans think that they can have a massive strategic impact for very little spend themselves. Get it completely wrong. You know, as, as, as we all know, the British don't really deflect anything from the Western Front at all. 
it's local troops and Indians that are moved into theatre there. So they use a short sea or a shorter sea communication route to bolster their position in Africa, and then we get that. that you know, the, the whole war is an immense tragedy. You know the misery that it causes, but this incredible one that's going to play out in Africa where the intensity of the misery for ordinary Africans that is created in this war and you have to say at the end, and for nothing for absolutely nothing it doesn't really affect the balance of the war at all the, say, the intensity of the pain and the suffering um, uh, and you can't even say well it, at least it did X or Y you know, to, to, to tip the war um, over so there's a strategic bankruptcy there now um, to, to bring it back to, to the Western Front and uh, let, let joy be unconfined. I'm moving towards a conclusion here. You know, I can see the sense of relief out there. Um, when you've got uh, you know, when you've got Britain that is lending its, its manpower you know, to a coalition with France and a French army that's done so much fighting in 14 and 15. Um, obviously, you're, you're taking it to France. You're trying to prepare it as best you can. But to prepare that army, to have it truly ready, you know, to truly achieve something spectacular almost instantly is asking a lot. This is part of the, 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 the tragedy of something like the Battle of the Somme, isn't it? That, that you see an incredibly um, uh, sophisticated manpower base, you know, the, the, the quality of those volunteers, their degree of motivation is amazing. But what they're going to have to do for a lot of it is that most dangerous of um, enterprises, particularly in the war, they're going to have to you know, finally learn their skills on the job whilst they're doing it. And in, and in a fighting situation, you, know, you might say that, that, shall we say, is suboptimal. That's not what you get. But it means that we have this huge battle that goes on and on and on and on through the Somme. It's drawing down German power. And it's one in which you know, British forces are becoming gradually at all levels more sophisticated, more of an understanding of what they want to do and how they want to go about it. But you know, given the scale in front of them, it's not going to do it instantly because they've, they've still got to perfect this they've also i think you know and again i'm, I'm summoning this up um with um uh, you know incredible broad brush strokes here and, and, and chucking out all of the detail the, the british and the french in 1516 have got to think you know, what exactly do we think is the best way forward here what's the best way to use the military power that we have obviously we, we want to break through the German lines, but we, we can see that they're often quite tough uh, to break through. How do we, what should we do? How should we balance this? Is this attrition that's meant to lead to ultimately a uh, breakthrough? You know, are we thinking that breakthrough can come really quite quickly? What's the game that we're playing? Um, and for, you know, armies that have expanded so much, that have, that have gone from relatively small bases to the, these massive ones, um, and you've got lots of um, cooks, you know, standing round the bowl um, uh, and standing round the great cauldron, working that out, working out exactly what it is that you want to do and how you're going to do it is going to take some time. We keep coming back to the point. The, the, the tragedy is, of course, for all every part of that, 
is that it means more deaths, it means more misery for, for, um, for, for huge numbers of people across uh, the world. And then what you might say is, you know, what's occurring during 1917 is that attrition on the Allied side is being um, perfected. If you think about the way the British play the early phases of, of Arras or Third Eep or Combray, you know, th- there are remarkable flashes of, of uh, success there. It's that moment, isn't it? That moment that they can't quite perfect at this point of transitioning the the, the break-ins to absolute breakthroughs um, but but by 1917 you know thanks to this industrial mobilization what they can do and they would be able to do even more in 1918 and they would have been able to do even more in 1919 had the war gone on is chuck material as well as manpower at it because that industrial base had clicked into action. You know, the, the, its ability to scale itself up was being perfected by 1917. And then um, in 1918, uh, and again, I'm, I'm sure I know, uh, Steve will, will, will do this much better than I uh, and, and, and deconstruct this argument uh, in a much more sophisticated and, and granulated way than me. Um, you know, what you might say uh, will occur in 1918 ultimately is getting the, 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 the synchromesh right between attrition and breakthrough when you start and when you stop an offensive, when you keep punching and when you pull away, when you punch somewhere else or pull away, all of that um, is, is going to start to come through for the Allies. But what we see here then is ultimately you know, the, the argument that we, I think we all are, are continually having. Do, you, do we then think that a four and a half you know, to, to five years, given the scale of all of this, is long or short? You know, that's, that's kind of an, it, it, has this taken a really long time or, or, or is it in fact quite remarkable when you look at the set of problems um, that are in front uh, of the Allies uh, at Christmas 1914 you know, um, uh, it, it do in fact they get on top of this in uh, an amazingly short space of time I mean, particularly if you play it out against say the length of the Napoleonic Wars or something like that you know, do they actually click all of this together quite remarkably always though you know, lest I sound glib about this we keep coming back to the point that it's it's still causing untold misery for, for untold millions um, uh, out there and, and um, that the expense is terrifying. So, ultimately, it's all come together um, in 1918. All of these elements, you know, all of these components of the Lego set have finally uh, been put together and we do get the end. And I, and I think it's uh, very, very interesting in, in some ways that the, the greatest British propaganda statements um, in, in terms of the historical record that's being consciously created at the time c- come from the fleet. You know, uh, it's something like this. It's, it's uh, Sir John Lavery's great painting of uh, the end, the, the, the surrender of the German fleet on the 16th of November 1918. And what we can see in both the Great War and in the Second World War, is that ultimately coalitions which have a very big component of which is absolutely dependent upon exterior lines of communication is going to end up winning. The guys that had to drag their power, their potential, their material, their human resources across vast oceans... Um, then are often to, to stockpile them in a certain place and then move them on again, 
they will end up winning two world wars. So in some senses, you know, that, that Mackinder thesis of it's going to be the spiders sitting in the middle of the web who are pushing out will inevitably end up winning and, and, and shaping um, everything that is to come. In the two world wars, there's a, a, a flash of what might be thought of as the, the old-fashioned um, that it was the great maritime powers that made the combinations that got the best out of their maritime power so that their military powers um, uh, can uh, do their jobs. Even, say, uh, if at times, a lot of that is actually their navies acting as taxi forces, you know, bringing the power to the point where you, you want it to be. So um, some really fascinating things about uh, uh, geopolitics, about the way power is exerted, um, you know, so, which then always filter down to myriad of, of human tragedies, though, and that, that is the flip side of all of it. So I will, um, let joy be unto mine, I will actually sh uh, shut up there, and then that wonderful um, uh, David Beatty's you know, final signal, the German flag is to be hauled down at sunset today and is not to be hoisted again without permission, 21st of November, uh, 1918. I will um, haul down my flag today. I've no doubt to your um, uh, immense relief. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope that was of some interest. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.